Our Father, we ask for your blessing to be upon us as we hear from your word. May you give us the ability to focus, to turn our eyes away from the distractions of the world. Father, bless our ears to hear, our minds to understand, and our hearts to cherish your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Shortly after my oldest daughter, Eliza, was born, Jill and I began to discuss her baptism. I was in seminary at the time, and I was surrounded by some of the smartest biblical scholars and pastors in America, so I was more than excited to discuss baptism, especially now that it had become a reality for me. You see, Jill and I had both come from church backgrounds, which did not practice infant baptism. She grew up Church of Christ, I grew up Southern Baptist, and so when the time came for us, for us to baptize our child, we wanted to be sure that we really understood baptism. We wanted to make sure we understood it deeply before committing to it. Because it was one thing to accept the doctrine on paper, but now that we had a child, the doctrine became a reality. So we began to read about what the church had believed about baptism throughout its history. We listened to sermons, we read books and articles, we prayed and we talked to a lot of elders in the faith. And during this time, I had an interesting conversation with a Presbyterian pastor whom I respected. I met with him at his church to discuss baptism, and I pestered him with all sorts of questions. And after fielding my questions for a while, he ended the conversation by telling me this. He said, you know, Dylan, baptism doesn't really do anything. This puzzled me. And so I paused for a moment and said, okay, well, if it doesn't really do anything, then why do we do it? He looked at me and he said, well, you grew up Baptist, right? Yes, I said. He then said, well, infant baptism is basically the same thing as baby dedication. It's nothing more than you and your wife getting up in front of the congregation to say that you are committed to raising your child to love and follow Jesus to the best of your ability. It doesn't save them. It doesn't do anything for them. It's really just a way for you and your wife to proclaim to the church that you've had a kid and you are committed to raising your child in faith. That's all it is. As I left this conversation and headed back to my car, I thought about what he said. And I remember thinking that was the stupidest thing that I had ever heard in my life. It made zero sense to me. And as I sat in my car, I remember pausing for a moment and thinking again, if that's all baptism is, then why do it at all? Because what this man, and many more, it wasn't, it wasn't just him, but what this man and a few others were saying to me is that all the biblical imagery, all the words about baptism in Scripture, all the writings of the church fathers, the reformers, and the vast majority of every Christian tradition that has ever existed, we're simply practicing baptism because it's a cute ceremony where you can get up in front of the church and show off your baby and say you'll try to raise them to love Jesus. That's all it is. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that that is not all it is. It is not just a ceremony where you declare your love for Jesus or a baby dedication. In fact, what we will see in our text today is two things. Two things. One, baptism is warfare. And two, baptism now saves you. But baptism is warfare, and baptism now saves you. Now, this is what the Bible says. And as Christians, it is therefore what we are commanded to believe and teach. We are to speak biblically to each other, and the Bible says baptism now saves you. And we'll see this in our text. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 22. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 
being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, or God's patience waiting in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. I'm going to read that part again. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. First Peter is written to Christians facing persecution. And Peter writes this letter in order to encourage those who are suffering for their allegiance to Christ. And he encourages them to stand firm in the faith. And Peter's main source of encouragement for them is Jesus, whom he tells them also suffered in his life. Jesus was also persecuted in his form. We see this in verse 18. Verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, the fact that Jesus suffered and was killed in this life is what gives us hope and power to endure any trials that we face. You see, there is nothing that Jesus cannot overcome, for he has defeated death. He has defeated the last enemy. And therefore, since we are in him, there is nothing that we cannot overcome. We will defeat death also. Sin and evil have both been conquered, and there is nothing left to stand in our way to victory because our king has won the battle. And baptism is our reminder of this. Baptism is our assurance of this. Jesus has won, so we will win. Jesus defeated death, so we will defeat death. Baptism is our reminder that we are in Christ. So whatever happens to Jesus will happen to us because we have been baptized into his death. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with it by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So that's what Paul says about baptism. And this is Peter's point here in our text. Baptism now saves you. Now, how does baptism save you? You know, we're being honest, as Protestants, we don't like this kind of stuff, right? We don't like to say those kind of things. Even if it's plainly right here in the Bible. You know, many struggle with Peter's words here in verse 41 because they think it's heretical. It, it's works righteousness. I know a few moments ago, some of you may have been thinking, how can baptism save us? Isn't it just a work of man? Are we now teaching justification by works here? It's just to put you at ease. No, we are not teaching justification by works. Now, and I'll go ahead and say this too, just to put you at further ease. We do see in Scripture the example of the thief on the cross who was saved without baptism. That is true. But that is not the normal mechanism or pattern of salvation that we see in Scripture. Rather, in Scripture, it seems we are supposed to assume that baptism and salvation go hand in hand because God is the one who baptizes. God is the one who baptizes. Now think of it this way. Think of it this way. Would you consider a person a Christian if they refused to get baptized? Now, there are some circumstances where maybe a young, immature believer doesn't understand baptism. And we see in Scripture it is possible in rare, crazy circumstances to be saved without baptism. 
But I would say, in most circumstances, if there's a person claiming to be a believer and they aren't baptized, I wouldn't take them that seriously until they become baptized. I'll give you an example of this. In my first year as a pastor, I became close with a congregant we call him Phil. And Phil had all these weird you know, views of baptism. He wouldn't get baptized. But he came to me one day, and he had all these great ministry ideas that he wanted us to, to do together. And I said, well, I'm not doing any of those He looked puzzled and asked me why, and I told him, well, because you're not baptized. He was frustrated. He started questioning me for a bit, but I said, Phil, since you refuse to get baptized, I have no confidence in your commitment to Christ, and I have no assurance from my end that God is saving you. Now, this conversation went on for years, and I'm happy to say that it does have a happy ending. Eventually, I won, and he got baptized with all his children, and it was amazing. But his problem was for a long time he failed to see baptism as an act of God. You see, when you witness a baptism like you did this morning, you are witnessing a miracle. You are seeing God's sovereignty play out right before your eyes. You see a person leave the kingdom of sin and darkness and enter into the kingdom of Christ. And you know, a minister is not really the one baptizing. He is an instrument used by God in order to put his saving covenant mark on a person. So God in his sovereignty is the one who baptizes. Now think about think about it this way. You ever think about how crazy it is that you're sitting in here right now? You know, you're sitting in this brand new startup church in a young, small denomination right outside of Austin, Texas, as a believer in Jesus Christ. You ever think about how crazy that is? You know, I've heard many of your testimonies. And I know some of you didn't come to faith until later in life. You weren't raised in the church. Some of you lived a life of debauchery. Some of you grew up as a loyal atheist. Many of you aren't even from Austin. But you're sitting here now in this little church as a baptized son of God because before the foundation of the world, God chose to save you and baptize you into his son, giving you his covenant mark. He claimed you as his own. And the proof that he did is your baptism. The proof that he did is your baptism. And again, this is Peter's point, and we will see this more clearly as we continue on. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely to the water. Now, one of the biggest questions that comes from this text is, who are these spirits Jesus is preaching to? Well, verses 19 and 20 are a reference to the flood story in Genesis chapter 6 through 9. And these spirits are assumed to be the evil spirit, spirits or rebellious demons who are on the earth in those days. So they are in prison because they have rebelled against God and sought to further corrupt man, God's image bearers. So God flooded the earth and killed these evil rebellious beings and all of the evil humans who aligned themselves to them. Now, what on earth does this have to do with baptism? Well, this, this is the best part, all right? The water that killed the evil ones and put their spirits in prison is the same water that now saves you and will put you into heaven. Isn't that amazing? You know, we're reminded in verse 20 that eight people made it safely through the water while all the wicked people perished through the water. And the reason that Noah and his family made it safely through God's judgment of the water is because they were on the ark. And the ark is a picture of Christ. The ark is a picture of Christ. Jesus, like the ark, 
survived the judgment of God, and everyone who was on the ark survived the judgment of God. In the same way, now everyone who is baptized into Christ will survive the judgment of God because they are in Christ. Galatians 3.27 puts it like this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You, baptized Christian, are now on the ark, our Lord Jesus Christ. You are now on the ark. Now, Noah had to build the ark, and he had to get on the ark, but he only did so because God told him to. It was God who told Noah to build the ark. It was God who put Noah on the ark. It was God who closed the door of the ark. And it was God who sent Jesus, his son, to be the ark for us. God is the rescuer of his chosen. Noah was completely saved by God, and we are completely saved by Jesus. But baptism is the proof and public declaration that when God's judgment comes again, we have nothing to fear because we have survived the waters of judgment. This is why we can say with Peter that baptism now saves you because the judgment is over for you. You have gone through the judgment of God. And you know, when Jesus went to preach to these spirits in prison, it was to declare to them that God, what God used to kill them he also used to save his people. So you see, the waters of baptism are a mockery to the evil ones. All God needed was water to kill and imprison him, but he uses that same water that they couldn't overcome to declare us victorious over sin and evil. We overcome the water that they couldn't overcome. Your baptism is warfare. The victory is God the Father's through the Son, the Ark. Can I hear an amen to that? Amen. Your baptism is not simply a ceremony you choose to do. Your baptism is God's sovereign way of saving you by uniting you to His Son. And it's proof that He is uniting you to His Son. Baptism is God's way of declaring warfare on evil. Now you need to realize this. Once you are baptized, you can never be unbaptized. Once you choose to have your child baptized, that child will never be unbaptized. A baptized person will always bear the mark of God. You will always be a reminder to the evil ones that you have been claimed and you are now a warrior against evil. You are an enemy of evil because you have been redeemed, claimed, adopted, and your sins have been forgiven. You are dangerous to evil now. There is nothing that can be held against you. There's nothing that can be held against you anymore. Once you are in Christ, the accuser is powerless over you because you have already survived the judgment of God. The punishment you deserve has been paid for by Jesus. But I want you to know you also have a target on your back. The evil ones will love to accuse you of your sin. But remember your baptism. Jesus has brought you through the waters of judgment already. Therefore, you have nothing left to fear. Because you are on the ark. Speaking of the ark, you ever think about all the ark must have gone through during the flood? It was thrown around by the waves. It constantly took on water. It hit rocks and probably ran into a mountain or two. But Noah and his family received none of the punishment that the ark took. While the world was being judged, the ark took all the blows of God's judgment. While Noah and his family coasted above, saved. From all that was happening. The ark was tossed around and bruised and beaten, but Noah and his family stepped off the ark ready for a fresh start. You know, there's no way of knowing this for sure, but I think it's safe to assume by the, by, 
by the time Noah and his family stepped off the ark, it probably wasn't very useful anymore. But it got the job done. It survived the judgment of God while the rest of creation was demolished. In the same way, our Lord was beaten, scorned, mocked, bruised, and killed so that you would survive the judgment of God. This morning we learned that baptism is warfare, and we survived the waters of judgment that the evil ones couldn't survive. We also learned that baptism does save us, but it saves us not because of our decision to be baptized or because the water gets us wet, but because God chose to put us on the heart of salvation, his son Jesus Christ, who brings us through the purifying waters of judgment as his adopted sons. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the ark of salvation, your son Jesus Christ. Thank you for our baptisms, which assure us that we are in him and therefore survive your judgment. We know this is only possible through your son Jesus, who was sinless unlike us. Therefore, we thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen.